0: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our text for our sermon is Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had 6 wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, the whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the one who called, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, I am doomed! I am ruined because I am a man with unclean lips and I dwell among a people with unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me carrying a glowing coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with coal and said, look, this has touched your lips. So your guilt is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of our Lord. In our gospel lesson for this Sunday, Jesus had already had Peter, his brother Andrew, John, his brother James, Philip, and Nathaniel following him around, but it seems at some point in time he allowed them to go back to their homes. And he shows up to where Peter and Andrew, James and John have their regular vocation of uh, of being fishermen. They were net fishers. And he gives them their formal call to be disciples. Says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now it makes for a really neat children's song. And isn't it really neat for mission work? But lots of times when we have the opportunity to serve, Well, we can get hung up in our own selfish desires and selfish needs instead of what truly glorifies God or we in today's day and age, especially here in America with everything going on, sometimes maybe we can just be embarrassed to jump on the moment and share the word of God when we have that opportunity to serve. Well, today we look at Isaiah the prophet's call, and it's interesting, there are five chapters before he lists his call, and in those five chapters, there's just a whole lot of uh, God telling other nations, including the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, I've had enough, I'm lifting my hand. Basically, the Assyrians are coming, and then the Babylonians are coming. Then he calls Isaiah, but as we look at that, we're kind of going through a how do you serve the Lord 101 class, and our sermon theme for today is, How does God prepare us to serve? Our text begins my own translation of verse one saying, it was during the year that King Uzziah died when I saw the master sitting on the throne, which is on high and being exalted and the flowing materials of his robe filled the royal abode a commandment, do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And we often think that means don't say the G-D word, you know, God blank it sentence. And yes, certainly that would be taking the Lord's name in vain. But it means so much more than that. For God's names reveal to us what he does for us. And there are especially two names used here. And that first one you heard I translated that as master. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. It brings out the fact that God made all of creation and he owns it. You and I have no right to tell God how to manage what he himself made. He's the master of the universe, not you and I. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere, and he's governing all creation. We have no business telling him how he should govern creation. There's a lot of things our tiny brains can't even handle in in governing the whole universe. And uh, so I often struggle how to translate that name because it really does mean even you're subject to God. He's the master of the universe. Maybe in today's text, a good way would be the majestic one because he's the master of the universe. But we see all that ruling majesty. The other name used for today is the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies, pointing out as... God could use, for example, the, the plagues with uh, gnats and, and with um, uh, grasshoppers in, in, uh, when, when he went against the Egyptians there with the plagues. God can call the stars, he can call the angels. As Jesus said to Pilate, I can call legions of angels. But the thing is, is while there's all that power and strength, and, and when we truly look at all of that, it should scare us, it should scare anybody in be, from being the enemies of the Lord. God rules sovereignly. He is it. There's nobody above him. And yet he rules over all creation for you. To bring you into the faith and keep you into the faith. And even rules over creation, giving you opportunities to serve. In fact, he uses you to bring others to the faith. One of the great ways we serve is by sharing the good news of salvation in Christ. So we see that God is sovereign. And when we look at that, that puts away any of our excuses to tell God how to be king over all creation for us. He knows better than we do. Our text continues telling us, seraphim were keeping their post above him and each had six wings. With two, they kept on covering their faces. With two, they kept on covering their feet. And with the other two, they kept on soaring. The Hebrew word, which we get the term seraphim from, seems to be derived from a word for flame. So, Isaiah seeing these flaming being things, they're, they're angels, and they're holy. We have to understand that. Originally, when God made everything like Adam and Eve, the angels were holy, but they weren't confirmed in their holiness. So it's kind of like you got your leftovers in the Ziploc bag, but you haven't sealed it shut. So there was the potential to sin we got to be careful even how we understand that. Now, when the demons rebelled, God made it so they can never be holy. They, they were before the throne of God and they rebelled. They are judged. But the ones that didn't rebel, that never sinned, they remained holy. God then confirmed them in their holiness, sealed the bag shut. Boom, they can never sin. How wonderful it would be to be that way. These angels are Holy. And yet, look at the reverence in which they show as they circle around the Lord. First and foremost, they cover up their eyes and they cover up their feet and they're holy. Now we have to remember, for example, in the Middle East at that time, When you came before a king, you often took your sandals off as a sign of respect. So really what they're doing here, we can speculate and get into everything else by covering up their eyes, covering up their feet. Even though they are perfectly holy, they are flying over the majestic one, the one who is holiness of all holiness, the Lord of lords. And they show a reverence towards that holiness of the Lord. And then listen to the song they sing. And each one kept calling one to another by saying, and as you hear that, you understand that it's an antiphonal singing. And here's the verse that they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of multitudes. All the earth is full of his glory. Now, Usually in the Hebrew language, if you really wanna emphasize something or make it majestic, you say it twice. They say it three times. Uh, We're not gonna get into a sermon on the Trinity today because that's for Trinity Sunday. Uh, But here, even the song they sing is pointing out how holy God is. And in reverence, this is what they do. They sing that song and they point out that the whole earth is full of his glory. Isn't it sad how unbelieving scientists can sit down and study creation And in the long run, hate God and resent him? But you know, the truth of the matter is, even many people with doctorates in various sciences, they study creation and suddenly they say, there has to be a God. I've been working against this. But look at the glory, look at how he designed this. Now, it's not that everything in creation is God, but God's glory fills all creation and creation shows the glory of the Lord. So as those angels fly around, we're even told in verse four, and the pivots of the doorpost kept on shaking from the voice calling out, and the house kept on being filled with smoke. Probably that smoke was from the altar of in- from the altar there before the Lord. The point here we want to understand, we begin with is God is sovereign; He's ruling over all creation for you. We have no business telling God how to rule. And secondly, those who are holy, they serve the Lord in reverence of his glory and absolute respect of his glory. We lost God's holiness. We lost God's glory when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And so while you've got these holy beings uh, flying overhead, uh, showing that respect and singing of the holiness of God, there's one sinner present that day, one sinner standing before the throne of the Lord. That's Isaiah. Now, remember when Moses had asked the Lord if he could see his glory there on Mount Sinai and God says, no man can see the glory of the Lord and live. And so he passes over, but he just gets to see the passing of God's glory. Keep that in mind as we read Isaiah, who is a sinner like you and me, his reaction. Verse five, then I said, woe is me because I'm terminated because I'm a man with unclean lips. I'm living among people with unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of multitudes, he'd seen the glory of the Lord. Remember what God said to Moses? He recognizes I I, I am to be terminated immediately because I am unholy. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah, who already five chapters of prophecy says, gulp, Uh uh-oh. And what does he say of himself? I'm a man with unclean lips. Isaiah, whose lips had praised the Lord, who had wrote down those first five prophecies. And Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. And the thing that always amazes me, Isaiah can be difficult to translate, because he's not just regular Hebrew. Isaiah writes everything in Hebrew poetry. In other words, he's writing hymns, his prophecies, you could sing them because they were Hebrew poetry. And his prophecies are in deep. But he says, "I'm a man of unclean lips." He had been tremendously gifted by God, but the lips that should have been glorifying God didn't always. And he says, "I live among a people of unclean lips." Let us not forget that we do the same. It amazes me how things that would have been seen even by unbelievers in our society 20 years ago as wrong. Things that we would have recognized as morally corrupt and, and even said, it's ridiculous to even think that. Today, if you say this is wrong, you may find yourself being fired from your job. You may find yourself being ostracized and then there's all the uh, different uh, Electronic communities that, that may remove you from them. Let's admit it. Isaiah is not excusing himself. Because I, I'm a sinner and I live among a bunch of sinners. How can I not help but be infected by their sin? Oh my goodness, I'm going to be destroyed. What do I do? Lips that should have praised the Lord, should have called on the name of the Lord often, they would tell God how to rule. They would tell God how to solve things. God knows what you and I don't know. And it strips us too when we look, because God's holiness, the law tells us what holiness is. But when you're a sinner, the law always accuses you. It always damns you. Even when you say, like Isaiah as a believer, I want to praise the Lord. You can turn around and and the law says to you, here are 10 thank yous. For example, lift up the name of the Lord. Don't treat it in vain. Treat it as amazing and glorious as it is, but we still fail. So even when we're trying to thank the Lord, our sin's always there. The law's always accusing us. And that puts an end to our ideas. We think worship is coming and and truly we miss how it's worshiping ourselves. This is how I want. I I want to sing songs that are entertaining for me and I want to hear sermons. And and certainly if a sermon doesn't apply to you at all, the pastor has failed you. And let's admit it, we can preach in ways that are pretty boring and put a person to sleep, but our sinful nature thinks God's word is boring. It doesn't want to be edified by that. But suddenly we stand before the Lord when his law accuses us and we go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm without excuse, I can't tell God how to be God, I can't tell God how to love me. And a lot of worship today in America becomes more pep talk, if you will. Oh, you're so lovable, you're so worthy. But when God's law is taught in its truth and purity, we shake like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm ruined. And lots of times in American churches, especially today, we treat God like he's some kind of a slot machine. You do the right good works. You keep throwing them in, pulling the handle, and eventually you're going to hit the jackpot. And God's going to make you wealthy, healthy, and wise. Instead of that, drive you to your knees so that you truly understand you need a savior, right? Right. Instead of recognizing Jesus saying, if you follow me, there are going to be crosses coming. People hated me and they're going to hate you, but I'm using those for your good. Isaiah cries out, woe to me. I I am terminated. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. And if that were the end of the story, if that were it, I would be telling you, you know what? You're going to hell and so am I. So live your life, glorify your flesh, fulfill its desires and pamper yourselves, but don't pamper yourselves to the point that you terminate your life early because when you die, you're going straight to hell. That would be sad, but it's not the end of the story, is it? And it wasn't the end of the story for Isaiah. We're told in verse six, then one of the seraphs flew to me and in his hand were a glowing piece of coal, which it had taken from the altar with tongs. And he brought the coal to touch upon my mouth. Then he said... See, this is touched upon your lips and therefore your iniquity withdraws and your sin keeps on vanishing. Notice how I translate the Hebrew tense. Not just that minute it's gone, your sin keeps on vanishing. A couple of things we want to cover here. First of all, two, uh, the, and two of the most common words in Hebrew for sin are used here. The first one I translated as iniquity. It really it really is, is a taking God's will and twisting it to suit your own needs. I would translate it as perversity, but when we hear perverse in America, we only think of sexual sins. But it's when, for example, somebody says, I know Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if I'm angry at someone in my heart, I've murdered them in my heart. But then we twist God's word and say, but that person was extra mean to me. They told extra bad lies about me. It's okay for me to harbor a grudge. We're taking God's will and we're twisting it. That's been removed from Isaiah. The other one the, is one actually for archery when you're shooting a bow and arrow and you wanna hit the bullseye. You have every intention. You're trying to hold yourself steady in everything and you let go and you miss the bullseye. How often is it that we want to serve the Lord and we have the best intentions, but our sinful nature is right there. And that sinful nature, there's sin involved. We wanna be glorified just a little bit. We want just a little bit of recognition or we want that person to see how much better we are. And there it is, we miss the mark. Another thing I want to cover here, since all these are removed from Isaiah, is the method that's used. It's certainly Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross 700 years after Isaiah, that removes his sin. But how did the seraph use that? He used a tool, he used an instrument, he used coal from the altar. Christians today can get hung up on that and and actually deny the word of God and not realize it. How could God possibly give forgiveness through baptism, even though when you read the original Greek in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, the apostle Peter, with, with the prepositional phrase, makes it very clear that baptism results in the forgiveness of sins and that you literally receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But they deny God couldn't give you forgiveness through water, ignoring the word and the promise attached to it. And they do the same with the Lord's Supper. You literally receive in a way that defies human understanding and science. You receive the body and blood that was shed for you to nourish your faith. And Jesus even says in the original words of institution, the covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And yet they say, how can bread and wine do that? Well, it's because of the word, the promise attached with it. And the greatest way that God works is what's the other two already had in common is the word. And the amazing thing is, again, when God wants somebody to know his love, he usually doesn't send angels. He sends you. So you get to come with the word in a time where you could go to department stores and buy Bibles for less than 10 bucks, where there are societies that give them away for free. yes. First and foremost, as Isaiah looks into the law because he sees all of God's holiness and says, I'm ruined. God sends an angel to tell him you're cleansed. And that's because of the coming of Christ who would do that in our place. So how does God prepare us to serve? By showing our unholiness and then by cleansing us. Our text continues. Then I heard the voice of the master saying, who shall I send and who will glorify us? Now God could send an angel, and He certainly did. Remember, after Malachi gave His prophecy, there was roughly 450 to 500 years of silence. And that silence is broken when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, the priest, who's about to offer uh, the, the uh, offering of, of incense on the altar of incense. And in the first things, He says, "Don't be afraid, Zechariah." And then He says, "You're going to give, the, you're going to be the father of the Lord's forerunner." And then there's silence for six months again until he comes to the Virgin Mary and says, the Holy Spirit's gonna knit the humanity of the Savior in your womb. But God usually doesn't send angels, does he? Do you notice here, he's already used Isaiah first five chapters to prophesy. But God now gives Isaiah his chance to say, I am willing to serve and be your prophet. He gives him the invitation. And what does Isaiah say? Here's where I miss the language of the King James Version. The Hebrew word literally is one word, hineni. And and we would translate that, behold, here I am. Behold, I, behold me. We don't use the word behold anymore, that's my whole point. So we would translate it something in modern English, like, look at me, here I am, all there in that one Hebrew word, hineni. But then he says, send me. God does the same with you and I. He shows us our sin, he shows us our savior, and when he gives us the faith to know our sins are forgiven, you become a priest. You get, to, you get to be sent. And, and some of the greatest ways we're sent, we even forget it is when you have children and you know, they're not always gonna like to be exposed to the law. My sinful nature hates it. Of course they're going to. But there's also, we gotta show them the law so that they understand that they have, that why they need a savior. So then they get the great news that we have a savior. We share it with our family. If we're privileged and our parents are older to have them live in our home with us. When we go home and we discuss it or we discuss the sermon and Bible study with our spouses. We're privileged when our neighbor is hurting and we get to tell them God is ruling over all creation for you. Now, let me tell you of his love that he took you, that the proof that you can be confident he's using this for your good because he took your sins upon his shoulders and went to that cross. Yes, when we see our neighbor hurting, we have the opportunity to say, here I am. And so as I began talking about uh, serving the Lord 101, how does God prepare us to serve? By showing us our unholiness, by cleansing us, and then by presenting the opportunity. Amen. Now to him who is able, according to the power that is at work within us, to do infinitely more than we ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.